This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. No matter what so-called conservatives say, the pro-life movement must continue. As this podcast goes live, the final preparations are being made for the March for Life in Washington, D.C. on January 19, 2024. The date for this annual event was first chosen to coincide with the anniversary of the disastrous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. When that decision was overturned, many hoped that the pro-abortion movement would dry up and blow away. However, that has not happened. In fact, the pro-aborts appear to be even stronger today than they did in the bad old days of Roe. Many so-called conservatives are saying things out loud that they once kept under wraps that it is time to jettison the pro-life message from the right-wing lexicon. Today's podcast is designed to resist that sentiment. We begin with Mr. John Horvath's bold depiction of the importance of Christianity within the pro-life movement and society as a whole, titled, Achieving Christendom is America's Best Chance at Overthrowing Abortion and the LGBT Reign of Terror. This essay was first written in 2020. Some of the details described in it have changed, but its substance remains vitally important. Grave moral problems are tearing the country apart. For many, this is apparent in the form of broken homes, procured abortion, shattered communities, and lost faith. Many people get it right when pointing out the problems. However, they get it wrong when looking for solutions. Some get it wrong because they look for solutions that address symptoms, not causes. Others search for a way out that involves the least possible effort. In these politically correct times, people are told not to offend anyone by their proposals. Thus, they automatically exclude the only real solution, which is a return to Christendom. They are willing to consider any other solution, no matter how absurd or improbable. Anything but Christendom. Christendom. It may seem shocking since its days seem long past. We are supposed to be in a post-Christian era. However, the urgency of our times call for it. We need a Christian civilization if we are going to overcome the present crisis. It needs to be at least considered. Because our problems are moral, our solutions must also be moral. The rich treasury of Western thought and traditional church teaching prove that the natural law and Christian morality are the norms that are best suited to our human and social nature. We find our greatest happiness inside institutions and social structures that take us to the end for which we are created, God. Thus, we should naturally tend to favor Christendom. Everyone Christian and non-Christian alike, finds the best conditions for prospering inside a family of nations that facilitates virtue and promotes social harmony in this veil of tears. But everyone avoids this conclusion. We have long been conditioned to reject this line of thought. This anything-but-Christendom, or ABC, syndrome curiously applies alike to the political left, right, and center. It embraces both secular and religious America. The most rigid tyranny bars anyone from thinking outside the materialistic box. Each political sector has its own reasons for denying Christendom. For radical liberals, the ABC syndrome makes sense. 
They resent any moral limits to their acts and do not care if there are harmful consequences. Individual pleasure reigns supreme regardless of self-destruction or the death of babies. Thus, a Christian moral code represents an unbearable restriction on their desires to do, think, and be whatever they want. Their variant of the ABC syndrome is to allow everything but Christendom. Use any letter of the LGBTQ plus alphabet, but never use C for Christendom. Those on the right have a different approach. We find Christians who truly desire a Ten Commandment-based moral code, for example. However, they dare not promote Christian morality because the people and media who oppose it appear to be numerous. For them, it has no chance of winning. Thus, they subscribe to the anything-but-Christendom approach on how society should be run. Every concession must be made to accommodate others who refuse to accommodate them. Christians dance around all the issues touching on Christendom, but no one dares say the word. And then there are the radical moderates, who want to appear non-radical. In their radicalism, these extremists purge all moral references from the debate. They prefer to tweak the status quo, hoping to avoid the Christendom issue altogether. As society falls apart, this effort proves elusive and ineffective. Three main fallacies are used to justify the ABC syndrome. The first is the mistaken belief that proposing Christendom imposes the faith on non-believers. Liberals think that establishing any moral limits means imposing Christianity on others. And yet they have no qualms whatsoever in imposing their anti-Christian will on Christians, on Christian feast days such as Christmas, and the Little Sisters of the Poor. They have no scruples about stuffing a drag queen story our world of perversion down the throats of society, despite protests from concerned parents. Christians cannot impose their faith on those who do not believe because faith is a gift from God. It cannot, by its nature, be imposed. However, Christians can and should enact reasonable laws based on the natural law that call for moral restraint to form a just and harmonious society. Since Aristotle, moralists taught that this natural law is valid for all times, places, and people. By advocating such moral limits in the law, Christians merely obey the nature of the law, which restricts what individuals might do for the sake of the higher common good. In proposing Christendom, we are not imposing, but returning to an order that conforms to our human nature and which favors our development and sanctification. In submitting their everything-but-Christianity agenda, the left imposes on society a destructive system that brings it to ruin. The second fallacy is that Christendom is so far removed from society's current state that it is impractical to propose it. The Christian agenda is hopelessly outdated from postmodern times, it is falsely claimed. There is nothing more outdated than today's anti-Christian agenda. 
As Catholic thinker Plinio Correa de Oliveira notes, there is nothing new about divorce, procured abortion, nudity, and moral depravity. Most modern proposals are merely recycled pagan vices from antiquity. Moreover, what could be more foreign to our American Christian heritage than the sudden appearance of transgenderism or the current mainstreaming of satanic movements? Indeed, most Americans identify with a return to our Christian roots. They have problems adjusting to the latest barbarisms proposed by a neo-pagan culture. The debate should not be centered on the age of the ideas proposed, but their merits. The automatic exclusion of ideas because some claim they are outdated is foolish and wrong. The only thing that matters is if they are true or false. Finally, there is a fallacy that it is impossible to change society quickly, especially when most people seem to subscribe to the opposite of a Christian civilization. At best, a Christian restoration is a futile effort, they erroneously claim. Again, this argument sidesteps the merits of ideas. It focuses on the practicality of implementing them. However, this fallacy is as flawed as the other two. Captivating ideas like homeschooling, for example, have drastically changed individuals and families in a short time. As the last elections have proven, voters will change their positions when convinced of the need to change. Societies, too, can radically and quickly change. Consider the sexual revolution. Within the space of a decade, the 60s radically changed the mores, fashions, and manners of that generation and all those that followed. Most people in the 60s were not hippies, but many adopted hippie ways in the 70s as these became mainstream. The history of the church is full of fervent missionary efforts in which whole peoples, burdened by their paganism, were quickly converted to the faith by the efforts of men and the action of grace. These peoples changed their lives wholesale, adopting Christian ways in a short time. People change their ways when times are empty and ideas are exhausted. Indeed, it is in times like ours that grand ideas like Christendom have their greatest appeal. Thus, the time is ripe to debate Christendom. It should be done openly, unapologetically, and enthusiastically. Many do not know what Christendom is. Indeed, the ABC syndrome represents old liberal prejudices that distort the true nature of a Christian society. For too long, our shallow, materialistic society has suppressed the notions of wonder, sublime, and the sacred that correspond to the deepest desires of the human soul. By engaging in the debate over Christendom, we address the emptiness of our nihilistic society that finds no meaning or purpose in life. Above all, the failure to debate Christendom is fatal, since it means the continued descent into an anti-Christendom of anarchy and unrestraint. This anti-regime is already seen in the dark yearnings of Antifa, 
anarchists, and the satanic movements that call for a world without morality. They advocate the destruction of our nation and the persecution of those who keep the faith. These topics need to be discussed. We should not be afraid to proclaim our desire to see Christ as king. Numerous popes have described this Christian society as one that affirms the social kingship of Christ. In his encyclical, Quas Primus, Pius XI says that, quote, Once men recognize, both in public and in private life, that Christ is king, society will, at last, receive the great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony, unquote. Only Christendom can be a truly just society for all. Now that we have looked at the general situation, let us focus more specifically on the importance of the abortion issue in American politics. One can see the importance of the abortion issue to the American right wing by taking a look back to the 70s and 80s. Difficult as it may be to remember, much of the support for the liberal Jimmy Carter came from people opposed to abortion. Mr. Carter's reassuring smile and Baptist background convinced many that he was on our side of the abortion issue. Mr. Carter's term of office radically changed that perception. He never actively promoted abortion in and of itself. However, he did promote the feminist agenda, and being pro-abortion was part of that agenda. As people came to see this duplicity, many pro-life Democrats changed their political affiliations, opting for the Republicans and Ronald Reagan in 1980. The fit between pro-life and Republican was never seamless. Many so-called country club and chamber of commerce Republicans appeared embarrassed by the enthusiasm of the pro-life movement. Now these strains are reasserting themselves. The Republican leadership shows signs of drifting away from its pro-life position. Mr. Horvat reminds conservatives of the strength of the pro-life message in his essay, No, the abortion issue did not lose its edge in the last elections. The long battle over procured abortion has been a constant sigh war. The media have done their best to create a hostile climate around those defending life while seeking to give the impression that everyone supports abortion. Pro-lifers have fought back tooth and nail by presenting a vibrant, compassionate movement that contradicts this negative image. As abortion clinics close in record numbers and hundreds of thousands of young people attend pro-life rallies, the lack of universal support for procured abortion becomes evident. Much of this psi war centers around images, perceptions, and moods. Thus, the message about the November election was that the abortion issue is a liability that conservatives had best abandon if they want to win at voting booths. The pro-abortion lobby is trying to convey an all-is-lost gloom around the issue. This gloomy notion is exaggerated. So says leading political analyst Karl Rove, hardly a hardcore pro-lifer. With his characteristic practical sense and keen observation, he says, don't believe the hype. In an article in the Wall Street Journal, 
The chief strategist for George W. Bush says that the importance of the abortion issue in the November 2022 election was vastly overstated. In fact, Republican performance was better than expected in many blue regions. There was no resounding victory for Democrats. The left has used the Virginia results as proof of the abortion liability. Democrats maintained control of the state Senate and picked up three seats in the House of Delegates, creating its razor-thin majority there. It was hardly a landslide. However, Mr. Rove points out that Virginia is a blue state, which President Biden won by 10 points in 2020. In the recent election, however, Republicans took seven state House seats in districts that Mr. Biden won by up to 10 points and three Senate seats that he won with up to nine percentage points. They did this without losing a single district they had won in 2020. Indeed, he notes that if these results were an example of losing, the Republicans could use more such losses in other states. Quote, These margins do not fit with the notions that abortion draws large numbers of independents and Republicans to vote for Democratic candidates, Mr. Rove concluded. He credits the Virginia razor-thin victories more to Democratic redistricting than to abortion politics. Moreover, polls show that pro-life Governor Glenn Youngkin is immensely more popular among Virginians than the radical pro-abortion President Biden. A similar dynamic was at work in Kentucky, another showcase for pro-abortion activists. The numbers, again, do not reflect the spin. The governor's race was much more based on the personal record of a well-known and liked incumbent than on abortion. The so-called abortion liability did not drag down the statewide Republican ticket, all firm pro-lifers, that won by an average margin of 18 points. Even the Ohio referendum was not proof of abortion's appeal. Mr. Rove attributed the defeat to errors in strategy and framing. The pro-life side was massively outspent as the opposition poured outside money into the effort. He believes that this defeat and other such state ballot measures are inconclusive. While Mr. Rove asks readers not to, quote, believe the hype around abortion, he is careful to say that pro-lifers need to adapt to the new circumstances after Dobbs. Abortion can sometimes benefit the Democrats in this new era. Pro-lifers must be careful about how they engage in the debate and be prepared to invest funds in their efforts. However, he insists that the anti-abortion cause is a winning issue if framed with care. The important thing is not to give in to the media's gloom machine that tries to claim that all is lost. It is easy to forget that the Dobbs decision threw the pro-abortion movement into the throes of despair. It still has not recovered. In the Psy War over procured abortion, victory comes to those who are grounded in certainties, not dark impressions. In this case, the pro-life movement must do what it has always done. Confide in God, who will give certain victory to those who defend his law.
The real strength of the pro-life movement has always been in its reliance on people of faith. Only a handful of professional politicians ever wholeheartedly embraced that position. However, millions of individuals from all walks of life and all parts of the country eagerly presented the message that abortion is murder. In The Invincible Courage of Paulette Harlow, Mr. Horvat looks at one of those individuals. The forces of evil are arrayed against those who oppose abortion as the pro-abortion movement is employing new and crueler measures. Liberal prosecutors are now using the nefarious FACE Act to maximize jail sentences and discourage resistance. In the latest chapter in this prosecution, rescuer Paulette Harlow was recently found guilty by a pro-abortion judge on charges of conspiracy against rights for her participation in a rescue effort at the infamous Washington Surgic Clinic in the nation's capital in October of 2020. Pro-abortion judge Colleen Collar-Catelli handed down the verdict in a bench trial without a jury. The judge is on record as conjecturing that the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery might also include a right to abortion. Sentencing will take place on March 19, 2024. This case is truly impressive since everything seems to be turned against the 75-year-old activist. She faces incredible health problems and legal challenges. She nonetheless confronts them with supernatural courage. Mrs. Harlow has debilitating diabetes and Hashimoto's disease, an inflammatory thyroid condition. Severe back pains have reduced her to a wheelchair. She was initially declared unfit to stand trial. However, that decision was reversed in October. To appear in court, she had to travel in a special van that would allow her to lie down on the long trip from her home in Massachusetts to Washington. Just three days before the trial, she had a procedure to alleviate throat problems caused by a hiatal hernia. While waiting for trial, she was put under house arrest since the prison did not have facilities to care for her. Her companions in the rescue, however, were all incarcerated, both in pre-trial and while awaiting sentencing. Such a situation would be enough to discourage many activists. Despite all these trials and difficulties, Mrs. Harlow remains steadfast trusting in God and confident of victory. In an interview with LifeSite News, she joyfully revealed the secret behind her courage. Don't be weary, she said. We are on God's side, and he is doing so many things for us, because we know that pro-life is what God wants. It's what he has mandated for us, Unquote. She sees her setback as an occasion for yet more pro-life activism. Everyone should redouble efforts. Quote, I encourage everybody, once again, don't be afraid to get involved. Don't be afraid of counting the cost, she said. Mrs. Harlow admits that the prosecutor wants me in jail, despite her frailty. She notes that her house arrest allowed her to go to the doctor, but not to church. During the pretrial period, the wheelchair-bound pro-lifer was considered such a risk that she was not allowed to go to Mass or to the sacraments. 
a visiting priest was permitted to come to her once a week. She takes courage from the prayers of so many who prayed for her, which she called the whole mystical body at work. The power of Eucharistic adoration is one of her favorite devotions in which she finds strength. Federal Prosecutor Sanjay Patel is using the FACE Act as a tool to intimidate, charge, and jail pro-lifers. The law was intended to be used against groups like the Ku Klux Klan that are involved in, quote, violent hate crimes, unquote. It is now being turned against pro-lifers whose only violence is the desire to save lives. The Act's provisions allow prosecutors to add conspiracy charges that maximize sentences. Mrs. Harlow faces up to 11 years in prison. The use of the FACE Act demonstrates the special hatred reserved for those who uphold God's law. This is especially evident in light of the nationwide trend of prosecutors who are doing everything possible to diminish punishment of all types of criminals by abolishing cash bail or dismissing charges. Her steadfast courage should be an inspiration for all who oppose the taking of innocent life. However, Paulette would be the first one to admit that her fortitude does not come from herself. It is only possible when those who fight are, quote, on God's side, unquote. By God's grace, individuals become capable of supernatural acts of heroism beyond their normal capacity. They are able to confront adversity, confident that when all seems lost, God's assistance is all the more certain. This superhuman courage also explains the hatred of the adversaries that employ every possible plot against those who defend God's cause. The fortitude of a frail lady terrifies the pro-abortionists who have nothing similar to match it. Courage like this is what must finally prevail in the battle for innocent life. This concludes, no matter what so-called conservatives say, the pro-life movement must continue. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2024 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.